Well, our Honduras team is back, and I think uh, most of them are here this morning. And uh, y'all got in pretty late last night, didn't you? What time did you get in? About 12 or 12.30. And they're here. Amen. Isn't that great? Proud of them. Thankful for them. Thankful for the great week that they had. Um, y'all did miss it last week, though. Last week was, a, was an interesting week, uh, last Sunday, because we ended 10 minutes early. Did you notice that? I let y'all out 10 minutes early. Well, guess what? I'm taking those 10 minutes back today. All right, I'm adding them to today. So just letting you know. Last week I preached about what Paul had to say to single adults. You know, we're talking about Instafam, snapshots of a thriving family. And we've looked at, at parents and husbands and wives. We've looked at moms and, and a couple of weeks we looked at dads. Last week we looked at single adults. Single adults are family. And, the, and they have church family. And we looked at what all that meant last week. And a few people said last week that I made being single sound so good that I'm going to have to work extra hard to make divorce sound bad today. But you know what? I thought about that this week. Divorce is bad. Divorce is tragic. It's worse than bad. It's basically the death of a marriage. And death is something that should always be avoided and grieved, isn't it? Always. And and so... As I worked on this sermon, I thought about the fact that I really shouldn't have to make the case that divorce is bad. But the sad reality is that many people today don't really see the downside to divorce. And more and more on social media, you see these things where people, they celebrate their divorce. I mean, they have like a divorce shower and they'll, they'll put their divorce selfie on Facebook and make a big deal of updating their status and... And they throw, they go on these reverse honeymoons. Or there's even videos you can watch where they blow up their wedding dress or they do some dramatic way to destroy their marriage license. It's all very sad. And so I thought about the fact that maybe I do have to make the case today that divorce is not a good thing. That it isn't something that God favors. It isn't something that God blesses. And I could do that by talking about statistics. Oh, there are so many statistics and research about what it does to children, about the, the financial impact, the health impact. I'm not going to talk about that today. You can read that on your own. And, and I mentioned one statistic I did mention a few weeks ago is that divorce is on the decline in this country. Which at first sounds like, well, that's a great thing. But then you realize that marriage is also on the decline. That's one of the reasons why there's less divorce, there's less marriage. So as much as I tried to make the case for marriage a few weeks ago, as much as I tried to make the case for living within God's will as a single adult last week, today I'm going to try to make the case against divorce. Let me say this. I am sensitive to the fact that some people carry deep wounds because of problems in their marriage, because they've been through a divorce, because they've experienced the hurt of marital infidelity. I've seen how divorce affects people. My own family, my friends. As a pastor, I've I've counseled and walked with couples through this. And so I acknowledge that this can be a very difficult topic for some here this morning. And it certainly is not an enjoyable topic to preach on. And I have studied and I have prayed all week this week and, and even before this week in preparation for today's message. But when wrestling with the difficult issues of life, I find comfort in God's Word. God's Word that is never changing. God's Word that is always true. 
If we can trust our eternal destiny into the hands of Jesus, can't we trust our brief time on this earth in His hands too? Can't we trust the day-to-day issues of our life to Him? My desire is to approach the matter of divorce and remarriage by being as faithful to God's Word as I can be while also being as sensitive as I can be. I believe we should speak the truth, but always in love. So what I ask of you this morning is that you're going to, I'm going to ask you to approach this message with open hearts and open minds. Put, put aside any prejudices or preconceived notions that you may have about this subject and allow the Holy Spirit to take His Word and illuminate it to your heart. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the same passage we looked at last week. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to help the Christians in Corinth to better their lives. He's helping to disciple them in how to live in the way of Christ. What does it mean practically to be a follower of Jesus, especially in their relationships with each other? And so in chapter 6 and 7, Paul is specifically talking about issues of sexuality and marriage. This was a particular problem in Corinth. And it's within this context that he spoke to single adults, we looked at last week, and to those who are dealing with the issue of divorce. The first thing I want us to see is that Paul gives us a clear command. A clear command in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, Paul has shifted here from his encouragement to single adults to delivering a direct command to married people. And this is a command that comes straight from the Lord. Now, what he means by that, saying, not I but the Lord, is that whereas in some of his teachings, Paul doesn't necessarily feel the need to quote directly from Jesus. He doesn't always feel the need to say, now, Jesus said, because Paul is an apostle and it's assumed he is speaking On the Lord's behalf, He is speaking under the inspiration and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in this issue, Paul felt like it was important for him to invoke the name of Jesus. What he's saying is he's saying, this isn't just something I'm saying. Jesus Himself taught this very same viewpoint. Jesus said this as well, is what He's he's telling us. And, And Paul rarely does that. So why is he doing it here? Well, I think it's because that even 2,000 years ago, Paul understands just as much as I do today, this is a touchy subject. This is a difficult subject to talk about. And Paul's wanting to make sure that the Corinthians understand this isn't just coming from Paul, this is coming from Jesus himself. History tells us that in Corinth and really in the Roman culture at large, divorce was running rampant. It was not uncommon for people to have been married 15 or 20 times. That is how loosely they treated those marriage vows. And Paul is pointing out that God has a higher standard than that. So Paul first stated a general principle to be followed. A wife must not separate from her husband. And he followed with similar instructions to man that the husband must not divorce his wife. Now, do not get hung up on these two different terms. I know that in today, you know, legally and just in our conversations, being separated and being divorced are two different things. That wasn't true in Paul's day. Morally and legally, those words separate and divorce mean the same thing. 
Alright, so, so just understand that. He's speaking as much to the wives and to the husbands. He's not giving husbands a pass or anything like that. He is speaking to them both the same way. And this clear command to not divorce is based on two fundamental spiritual realities about a married couple. The first is this. A married couple has become one flesh. A married couple becomes one flesh. We, we heard Jesus mention that. We heard Malachi mention that in our Old and New Testament readings this morning. They're both talking about what Adam says in Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The husband and wife are as one body, one person, one unit. And I said this a few weeks ago, you would go to the greatest lengths possible to save your arm or your leg from being amputated, wouldn't you? You would, you would try everything there was before you let somebody cut off your arm or your leg. That is as serious as a Christian couple should be about divorce. They should go to that same, those same lengths, they should have that same fierce determination to save that marriage. But secondly, it's also because the husband and wife become a living picture of the gospel. They become one flesh, but they also become this picture of the gospel. A few weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says that the relationship between a husband and his wife should illustrate the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so when you think about it, when a wife abandons her husband, it's like a church abandoning Jesus. Or even worse, if a husband leaves his wife, he disgraces the name of Jesus because Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And so, divorce disfigures this picture of the gospel that Christians should be portraying. Now, you may be thinking, well, David, doesn't the Bible allow for divorce in some circumstances? Yes. And in a few moments, we're going to look at the clear exemptions that both Jesus and Paul give. But even with those exemptions in mind, Paul, right here at the beginning, is stating God's perfect will. God's perfect will is for a husband and a wife to stay together as one flesh until death separates them. That is God's will. Now, one exemption I want to mention right now that... You may not find it stated explicitly in the Bible, though there are several verses that definitely talk about this. But I believe that divorce is allowed in cases of abuse or neglect. It is not God's will for someone to remain in a relationship that is threatening their life or their safety, and definitely not the life or safety of children. God would not ask you to do that. In fact, it is your God-given responsibility to escape an abusive relationship and certainly to protect your children from those kinds of, of, of emotional or physical danger. But what Jesus and Paul are mainly concerned about aren't the exceptions. And we'll look at a couple more. But they're mainly concerned about illegitimate divorce among believers. Now, what is an illegitimate divorce among believers? Well, you know, a Christian couple should never divorce over quote-unquote irreconcilable differences. And the reason for that is very simple. Between Christians, there is no such thing as an irreconcilable difference. The Bible is clear on this. Colossians 3.13, Paul says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Is there an irreconcilable difference between you and God? 
Is there any sin in your life that God's going to say, well, nope, I'll draw the line there. I'm not going to forgive you that one. Nope, not going to save you. You did this. Is there anything like that that will come between us and God? No. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're forgiven of it all. That's how the Lord has forgiven you. That's how Paul says we're to forgive one another. In Hebrews 12, 14, the writer of Hebrews says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. In Luke 17, 3, Jesus said, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was not reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, how can I bear the message of reconciliation? How can I be a part of God's ministry of reconciling the world to Himself if I can't even be reconciled to a brother or sister in Christ? And how can I be, how can I be reconciled to a brother and sister in Christ if I can't even be reconciled to my wife? The gospel demands every Christian live at peace with each other. To seek reconciliation, if at all possible. To help each other overcome our sins and our weaknesses. And in today's vernacular, that may mean that a husband and a wife need to live separately, to have temporary separation as they work on their marriage, as they seek counseling, as they strive to overcome the hurt and heal the wounds and restore trust. But the Bible never justifies divorce for irreconcilable differences. Now, for cases of such divorce, what the Bible would consider an illegitimate divorce, Paul offers two choices. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Now, unfortunately, Paul didn't go on to comment on what to do if those efforts to reconcile are rebuffed. And so we have to rely on the rest of Scripture. We have to pray for spiritual wisdom. We have to seek godly counsel to guide us in such a situation. But we should also always remember that God is a God of grace. Through all of this, God is a God of grace. A God of mercy and peace and healing. I know that relationships and family can be messy. Our sin nature makes marriage and, and co-worker relationships and friendships, they make them a whole lot harder than they have to be, don't they? Pride, hurt feelings, guilt, resentment, shame, you know, all those great side benefits to having the knowledge of good and evil. Thank you, Adam and Eve. All these things, they wreak havoc on our relationships, especially marriage. And Satan, more today than ever, is attacking families. He wants to destroy the home. Now, this morning we could list all kinds of scenarios and what-ifs and, and all of that. We don't have time to go into all that this morning. I, I said I'll take 10 minutes, not 20, right? Okay, so... But, but that's why we need to be reminded of some absolutes. I'm going to show you some absolutes, and then we're going we're gonna to move on and look at, at a conditional statement that Paul gives. Here are some absolutes I just want to throw at you this morning. Divorce is never part of God's will. 
Divorce is never part of God's will. Even in those extreme cases, like abuse and neglect, or the exemptions that Paul and Jesus give, neither divorce nor the reason that divorce has arisen as an option, none of that is a part of God's plan. None of that's what God intended when He created the world, when He gave Eve to Adam. Divorce is always an interruption to God's plan. Second, though divorce may be permitted in Scripture in some instances, it's never required. Nowhere in the Bible does it command you to be divorced. Third, exemptions aside, a Christian couple should never divorce. Exemptions aside, a Christian couple should never divorce, but rely on the Lord's help to reconcile their differences. Again, no sin is too great to be conquered if both partners are walking in love together, seeking the Lord. If we say there are, then we question the Word of God and the power of Jesus. For illegitimate divorce is a sin, but it is no greater sin than any other sin, and it can be forgiven by the Lord. And number five, those who have been through a divorce are not second-class citizens of the kingdom of God, and they should never be treated as such. If God forgives, then God's people should forgive as well and move on. So, Paul gives us a clear command. Do not divorce. But then Paul offers a conditional statement. Look with me at verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So now Paul has, has moved. He's not just talking to any married couple. He's talking to the rest. He's talking to believers who are married to unbelievers. And in contrast with his clear command, Paul admits that this teaching was his own. He, in other words, it's sort of like quotation marks. He's, he's put quotation marks around the one clear command from Jesus, and now he's, he's closed that quotation. He's moving on. This doesn't lessen the authority of Paul's teaching because, as I said, he's an apostle. He speaks on the Lord's behalf. What Paul means is that as far as he knows, Jesus didn't teach about married believers to unbelievers. But as inspired Scripture, we know that what Paul says is just as true and just as relevant as what Jesus says. It's the Word of God. Amen? Paul said that a believer should not divorce an unbelieving spouse if the unbeliever is willing to remain in the marriage. Now, you probably have known couples that, that where, where one person in the marriage was a Christian and the other was not. And you probably have seen the tension that those religious differences can bring to a marriage relationship. It, it can be really difficult. But even in that scenario, Paul is plainly stating that such differences are not legitimate grounds for divorce. But this is also one of the reasons why the Bible teaches us that Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So the Bible says if you're a Christian and you're unmarried, you need to look for a Christian to marry, a believer. But whether the, the person became a Christian after marriage or as a Christian married an unbeliever, Paul says that it is possible for that couple to remain together. And Paul offers two reasons for this. Two reasons why they should strive to remain together. Because the believing spouse first brings God's blessing on that home. Paul's terminology here can be a little confusing. We have to understand Paul, when he's talking about sanctification and holiness, he's not talking about salvation. Okay, no, no one person can redeem or justify someone else. Only Jesus redeems and justifies, Right? And, and no husband, wife, or children can ride into heaven on a family member's coattail. You have to have your own personal walk with the Lord. If, if that's what Paul was referring to, he wouldn't continue to refer to them as unbelievers. So that's not what Paul means. Paul uses the word sanctified and holy to say that the family is made special. That family has been set apart by God's, for, for God's use because of the presence of the believer in that home. God blesses that home in a special way because a Christian lives there. And through that believing spouse, that unbelieving spouse, at least indirectly, is participating in the community of the sanctified people of God. That, that spouse is being exposed to the church and, and is, again, at least in some periphery way, participating in the community of faith. Paul here is offering hope to those who feel like they have little or no influence on an unbelieving spouse. You know, just as the touch of Jesus could cleanse a leper's spots, just as, as, as the, the blood of an Old Testament animal being sacrificed could cleanse the people, so the presence of the Holy Spirit in that family through that believing spouse can overcome the unclean influences of the world in that family. And, and the sanctification process is different. In every marriage, some unbelievers won't respond to their spouse's Christian influence, but others may become believers through their daily witness. And that brings us to the second reason Paul encourages them to remain married. Not only do they bring the blessing of God, they bring the gospel of God into that home. Look at verse 16 again. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That was Paul's greatest hope was that through the presence of that believer there, that whole household would come to faith in Christ. And, and we, you, know, you probably know people as well as I do, where it was that influence of a Christian husband or wife that God used as the instrument to bring that person to faith in Jesus. And even if they don't come to faith in Christ, in the very least, the unbeliever comes into contact with the gospel, experiences Christian graces in ways they otherwise would never experience. But let's look back at verse 15. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So despite the potential for positive influence that a believer can have on a non-Christian's spouse, Paul knew the reality that oftentimes the unbeliever doesn't want to remain in that relationship. And for this reason, Paul gives his one exception. His one exemption for a Christian to divorce. If the unbeliever abandons the family, let them go. Let them go. 
A Christian is under no obligation to hold their marriages together by forcing an unbeliever to remain in relationship with them. And I think this verse also adds to the case that I mentioned earlier, that, that a Christian is justified in leaving a spouse that is abusive, neglectful, or deserts his or her family. The Old Testament law says that if a husband neglects to provide for the necessities of life for his wife, she is free to leave him. That's neglect. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8 that anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So then if the neglectful, abusive, or deserting spouse, even if they claim to be a Christian, they have abdicated their duty to provide for and protect their family, and presumably, according to Paul, they disprove their profession of faith by their fruit. They show that they at least are not living and acting like a Christian. They're worse than an unbeliever. And Paul says here that divorce, in those instances, may be the only recourse. So the clear command... It's for Christians not to divorce. But Paul clarifies that there are some exceptions such as abuse, neglect, and desertion, especially desertion by an unbelieving spouse. But then the question comes up. Okay, so the Bible is not, not for divorce. Divorce is something God hates. Malachi says that. But there are some exceptions here. We've seen that. But does the Bible give allowance for the divorced Christian to remarry? That question is answered by Jesus in Matthew 19. Look with me at Matthew 19, where Jesus offers a clarifying word. We heard some of this earlier. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. <clears throat> now, the Pharisees weren't really asking Jesus a fair question here. As they always were doing, they were trying to set Jesus up. They were wanting to trap him with his words. But this question in Jesus' day was a hotly debated issue. And there were two main schools of thought among first century Jews about divorce and remarriage. Rabbi Shammai taught the divorce could only be granted because of sexual immorality. He said that any kind of sexual sin broke the marriage covenant and released the innocent party to marry again. On the other hand, Rabbi Hillel taught that a man could obtain a divorce for any reason. If his wife burned his breakfast. If she developed a wrinkle. If she spoke to another man in public. If he just saw a woman that he thought was younger and prettier, for any reason, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. And this was the prevailing view in Jesus' day. So you can imagine in Jesus' day, divorce was running rampant among the Jewish people. And Jesus, as he always did, outmaneuvered the Pharisees and gave them an answer they didn't expect. See, they came to, they came to Jesus asking, 
What about divorce? And Jesus replied, what about marriage? So they were coming at it from the wrong perspective. And Jesus went beyond the law of Moses all the way to the beginning and reminded them that a husband and wife were one flesh. And that is a union made by God that no man should have the right to dissolve. So why did Moses make allowance for divorce then? They shot back. And Jesus answered, the divorce was permitted. Notice they say that Moses commanded, and Jesus said Moses permitted. There's a difference there. And Moses permitted divorce for one reason, and that's because our hearts are hard. Y'all, our hearts are hard, aren't they? We can be so hard-hearted, so set in our ways, so selfish. Divorce is never part of God's plan or intent for us. Divorce, like I said before, is like a death. It's an intrusion into God's very good creation. And like death, divorce exists because of sin. Because of our hard hearts. God's intention for marriage has always been and will always be one husband for one wife for one life. That's always God's will. Anything else outside of God's will is contrary to God's plan, period. But in verse 9, Jesus gives us our third exemption. Paul states one, Jesus states one, and I've inferred one from throughout Scripture. Jesus said that in the event of some illicit sexual activity on the behalf of one spouse or the other, divorce is permissible. Now, what does Jesus mean, though, by marital unfaithfulness? Some translations say sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia which means adultery or any illicit sexual activity, and it's the Greek word that we get, we get the word pornography from. So the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear and consistent in its teaching that marriage is the only valid place for sexual expression. Anything of a sexual nature that happens outside the marital union then can be grounds for divorce. That's what Jesus is saying. There's one more thing to understand about what Jesus says here. The tense of the verbs indicate that Jesus isn't talking about a one-time act, but a continuous lifestyle of sexual immorality. So if one partner falls into sin, but repents and seeks forgiveness and reconciliation, the gospel demands that we extend to that person the same grace, mercy, and forgiveness that we want Jesus to extend to us. So in the case of an incident of unfaithfulness, Christian spouses are obliged to do everything in their power to work through that very real hurt, that very real betrayal, and to work toward forgiveness and reconciliation and the future success of that marriage. Now I understand that, that sounds like a lot to ask of the innocent partner in that marriage to do. But if marriage really is an illustration of the gospel, if it really is a picture of Christ's love for His church, does He throw us away when we sin? Then shouldn't a Christian marriage display that same grace? I believe that the first recourse should be to forgive and by the Lord's help and through His grace work to save the marriage. Remember what I said, marriage or divorce is permissible in these instances, but it's not commanded. It's not required. 
And if I truly believe the gospel, then I have to believe that if a Christian refuses to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to another Christian, even to an unfaithful spouse, but who has been repentant and is truly seeking to turn around, repent means to change your ways. It means to confess that what you did was wrong. It means to reject that lifestyle and to turn around. And if a spouse is willing to do that, then their partner, if they're a Christian, they need to forgive. And to not do that is itself a sin. But if the unfaithful spouse is involved in an ongoing adulterous relationship, if they are truly unwilling to repent, they're not willing to confess what they did is wrong, they're not willing to seek help, they're not willing to go to counseling, they're not willing to cut off that relationship, then divorce is permitted according to Jesus. Now before we wrap up, I want to make two comments about remarriage after divorce. Because that's what Jesus is also talking about here. Two principles. The first, I believe if the divorce is biblically permissible, then the remarriage for that person is biblically permissible. Now, I'm going to pull a Paul here and say, I, not the Lord. All right? Because I can't really point to any singular Bible verse that says this. But again, we need to remember that Jesus and Paul are not exchanging the Old Testament law for some kind of a New Testament law. We have to remember that we are under grace, not under the law. This is not about legalism. But I do not believe that God would allow divorce for a certain reason and then not allow that person to remarry. I believe based on the overall teachings of the Bible that when God allows for divorce, He allows for remarriage because our God is a God of fresh starts and second chances, isn't He? A God of grace and mercy. And of course we know remarriage is permissible for those who have lost a spouse to death. But I believe it's also permissible for those whose unbelieving spouse abandoned them. Or whose spouse was abusive. Or when there was a lifestyle of unrepentant sexual immorality. If the Bible permits the divorce, then the Bible permits the remarriage. That's what I believe. You may disagree with me. That's what I believe. But secondly, I believe that if the Bible does not permit divorce then it does not permit remarriage in that instance. Now, I understand that might seem harsh, and that goes against the grain of our culture, but Jesus very clearly says here that remarriage after an illegitimate divorce is the same as committing adultery. That's not David saying that. That's Jesus saying that. And again, Jesus isn't substituting one form of legalism for another form of legalism, but He's illustrating something about the sanctity of marriage and the gravity of divorce. He's forcing us to look at our spouses as sacred beings created in the image of God for whom Jesus died. He's magnifying the unique worth and value of both genders and elevating marriage by showing that divorce is never to be entered into lightly and it must be a last resort measure even in the most extreme of circumstances. Now for those who rushed too quickly in divorce, for those who divorced for less than biblical reasons and then remarried, all I can say is this, that the divorce was a sin. That all you can do now is confess your sin to Jesus and He will forgive you. Just as He forgives the sins that I commit, the sins that anybody commits. And God isn't going to demand... I've heard preachers talk about this, that you know that if you divorced and you remarried, well, you need to divorce that person and marry your first... That's crazy. That's crazy. Two wrongs do not make a right. But what God will demand 
is that you live for Him and honor Him within your marriage right now the best way that you can, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead to claim that prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 7, if you look back at verses 17 to 20, that's what Paul's point is there. His point there is serve the Lord where you are right now, in your present circumstance, the best way you can for the glory of God. We've covered a lot of territory. And I hope that I've been clear on what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. This sermon's felt a little bit like tiptoeing through a landmine field. And I hope I've not blown myself up. But you know, instead of concentrating, we're sort of like the Pharisees. What about divorce? And Jesus says, what about marriage? So instead of concentrating on what to do when the bottom falls out, if you're married, focus on making your marriage as strong as possible. Don't look for loopholes and excuses and ways to get out. Make it a matter of prayer. Work hard at it. Our church has so many resources for you. There is counseling that's available for you. You're not alone. And to those who have been divorced, I want you to know Jesus loves you. And Jesus, if you've asked Him to forgive you, He's forgiven you. And the Lord does not condemn you. And neither do I. And neither does this church. Jesus longs to heal you. He wants to make you whole. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And Jesus can even take your experiences and use them to be a blessing to others and even to share the hope of Christ with those who are far from God. Your duty is to submit yourself to the Lord and to His will for you and to serve Him where you are with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's because of sin and the hardness of our hearts that our world is broken, and too often that brokenness is displayed in broken marriages. But I want you to know God always wants to heal what is broken. He always wants to put the broken pieces back together again. I'm so thankful that our God is a God of mercy and grace who's an expert at bringing beauty from the ashes and death and life from death. And so when a marriage does sadly fail, remember that divorce doesn't have to be the last word. Come to God and let His grace be the last word. Will you allow the grace of God to have the last word in your life. This morning you can discover the sacrificial love by Jesus Christ by confessing your sins, whatever they may be. By putting your faith and trust in Jesus and surrender and submit yourself to Him today. Let Jesus transform your heart. Let Him heal your wounds. Let Him become the Lord of your life. He can even heal your marriage. Maybe this morning God has laid upon your heart to unite with this church family. Like a, like, a, like a flesh and blood family, this church family isn't perfect. Sometimes we might fuss and fight with each other. Sometimes we might rub each other the wrong way. But you know what we do? We strive to be patient and forgiving and loving toward one another. And this is a church, no matter what your station in life, no matter if you're married, divorced, single, remarried, it doesn't matter. This is a church that wants to love you and wants to walk with you and wants to wrap their arms around you and help you journey in wholeness toward Jesus Christ. Whatever God has laid on your heart, I pray you would respond. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, we're all broken. And we all tend to make a mess of, of the relationships in our lives because we're hard-hearted and we're selfish and we're short-sighted.
Forgive us for that. And I pray, Father, that You would bring us further along day by day. Lord, even through the difficult issues of life, even through the dark valleys and the storms and the the rough seas, God, help us to keep our eyes on You and to trust that You will work through us to bring about Your good, perfect, and pleasing will. Father, whatever You're speaking to people's hearts today, I pray they would respond, whether that's at the altar or as they walk out the door. I pray we would walk in obedience with You today. In Jesus' name, amen.